by way of introduction, consider the following. It's terrifying to contemplate a child being lost in the forest. And with little difficulty, you can imagine him wandering about from place to place in such a frightened condition to die of starvation or exposure. And it's tragic for a ship's crew to be lost at sea. You can imagine men being tossed to and fro in the wild, raging waves of a stormy sea, only to die of exposure or to become food for the fish. But it's even more tragic for one to be lost in sin and in that horrible hell which is to come. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Enter ye into the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth unto destruction. And many there be which go in thereat, but straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. According to that language, the majority will be lost. At Acts 10, 34, Peter said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. Since the majority will be lost, and since God is no respecter of persons, and I need to give heed to John's statement at Revelation 2.29. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith. I could be lost. You could be lost. The world is lost. In Luke 19 and 10, Jesus said, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. 1 John 5.19 says, the whole, world the whole world lieth in wickedness. According to Romans 1, the Gentile world is lost. According to Romans 2, the Jewish world is lost. And in Romans 3.23, Paul said, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If Governor Clinton were to extend a pardon to you or me, it would be meaningless. But if he were to offer a pardon to an individual who is now in one of our state penitentiaries, it would be meaningful. And the very fact that pardon is extended to people in this life is proof positive that people are lost now. And that's what Jesus meant at John 3 and 18 when he said, He that believeth not is condemned. Already, It's not a matter of being lost in the future. If we're not right with the Lord, we're lost now. And if we don't get right, we'll be lost when we die, and we'll simply stay in a lost condition forever. And it isn't enough for an individual to come to the, conclu the conclusion that the world collectively is lost. We must see individually that we stand in need, that we are alienated, that we are away from God, and that we need to be saved. Tonight, if you are lost, who's to blame? Who is responsible for it? Will you place the blame upon God the Father? I think there are young people who can honestly say, My parents did not love me. I remember a young lady in this school with whom I worked some time. And her mother and daddy were living. And she had been in several foster homes and finally wound up in an institutional home in Tennessee. And she felt that her parents didn't love her. And, and I didn't know what to say to, to remove that feeling because I think she was right. I think she felt unloved, and I told her she needed to be extremely careful because with an attitude like that she could get into serious moral trouble. And in less than two years after she left Harding College, she gave birth to a child out of wedlock. And I am convinced that what began in childhood created that unworthy feeling in her life, and thus she sought love in a perverted way. But no one here tonight can say, God doesn't love me. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. I think there are some who can say, My parents didn't want me. But no one can say that about the Heavenly Father. He longs for us with a passion which simply cannot be described. And there are those who can say, My parents did not try to save me. But we can't say that about God because He has tried and He is trying and he will continue to try. As a matter of fact, 
He is described in the Bible as God, our Savior. If you're lost tonight, is Jesus to blame? According to Mark 16, 15, He said, Preach the gospel to every creature. You and I are a part of the creation. He wants us taught. In Matthew 11, 28 to 30, He said, Come unto Me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. And he extends that invitation to every heavily laden person in the audience tonight, to everyone who is burdened with guilt and frustration and anxiety and fear. That invitation is offered by the Lord. And Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us, according to John 14, 1 to 3. He said, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. No, Christ wants us taught. Christ extends the invitation to us. He has gone to prepare a place for us, and we all know that He died for us. Hebrews 2, verse 9 states, By the grace of God He was made a little lower than the angels, so as to taste death for every man. And verse John 2 and 2 reads that He is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is not to blame if we are lost. How about the Holy Spirit? Is He responsible? Jesus said in John 16, 8, when the Spirit came, He would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And I think I've referred to Acts 2 almost every night during the meeting, and we've learned that the Holy Spirit on the Pentecost day operated through the instrumentality of the preached Word so as to produce conviction. And 3,000 people became obedient to the gospel. The Spirit is concerned about us, and the Spirit will bring conviction to our hearts through the Word of the Lord. Why, the Spirit was so concerned 1,900 years ago that He inspired certain men to set down upon the sacred pages of the New Testament the very words of God. And those words bring conviction to us today, and those words tell us how we can grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Spirit invites us to make a change. At Revelation 22:17, John said, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. The Bride, of course, is the church. And Christians are pleading with non-Christians, Make a change. But the Spirit functions through the Word, and the Spirit functions through the church. And He's saying, Come, receive Christ, do the will of the Lord. He doesn't want us to be lost. As a matter of fact, He's ready to take up His abode in every heart which is obedient to the will of God. According to Acts 5.32, Peter said, We are His witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Spirit whom God hath given to them that obey Him. And in Romans 8, verse 9, You're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Paul, in one verse, speaks of the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. And he says, if the Spirit does not dwell in him, in a man, then the man does not belong to the Lord. Well, it's obvious then, once we become the Lord's, His Spirit takes up His abode in our hearts and in our lives. And according to Ephesians 3 and 16, He strengthens us, He comforts us, according to Acts 9, 30 and 31. The Spirit certainly does not want us to be lost. In Acts 7, 51, Stephen was speaking to his opponents. He said, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and in ears, ye do always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do ye. The Spirit of God can be resisted, but He does not want us to be lost. He's not to blame if we are lost. 
Well, will we blame the angels? According to Acts 8, the Ethiopian was led to Christ by Philip, but who put Philip and the Ethiopian together? An angel. According to Acts 10, Cornelius was taught the gospel by Peter, but who put the teacher and the lost man together? An angel. And if we had the ability tonight to pull aside the curtain of invisibility, we might be amazed to see what God's angels are doing in order that honest-hearted men and women can be given opportunity to hear the word of the living God. According to Luke 15, Jesus said there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. And from that statement, I know that angels know three things. Number one, they know who's saved and who's lost. And number two, they know when a lost individual is saved. And number three, they know that's the time to rejoice. If we're lost tonight, we can't blame the angels. If we're lost, will we blame the Bible? It isn't unusual today to hear people say the Bible is so difficult, I can't understand it. The next time you hear that said by one in the politest, kindest, Christian way possible, say to him, friend... What part of the Bible is it that's dealing you so much difficulty? And I am convinced in 99 cases out of 100, he'll simply clear his throat, turn eight shades of red, and beg to be dismissed. Because people who are saying that the Bible is difficult to understand in most instances haven't even read it. But they've heard someone else say that, and that's justification for not studying. That puts the burden and the responsibility on someone else, you see. I don't have to read, I don't have to study, because after all, I couldn't understand it anyway. According to Ephesians 5.17, Paul said, Be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Now, it seems to me that I must understand enough of God's will to get right with Him and stay right with Him. As a matter of fact, I am betting my soul on the truth I've just stated. I am gambling, so to speak, that I can't understand how to start and how to stay right. God either could or could not make it simple enough for ordinary people to get right with Him and stay right with Him. And if He could do it but didn't, then He's not the God of love about whom I read in the Bible. And if He could not do it, He's not the God of power about whom I read in the Bible. Now, I don't want anyone to misunderstand me. Not all of the Bible is as simple as falling off a proverbial log backwards. Peter said in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, our beloved brother Paul wrote some things hard to be understood. When I read that language, I want to say amen. That's right. He wrote some things hard to be understood. Well, what about knowing how to become a child of God and how to stay a child of God? If our salvation is predicated upon understanding that much, it must be simple enough for us to understand that much. I love to fish. Ray is a grammarian. He'll tell me I don't love to fish. I like to fish. I use the word advisedly, Ray. I love to fish. You know we've been enough together. You get on that river, butterflies in the air, see a rabbit, squirrel, Beaver, pick up some wily black and white bass. I don't believe in discriminating. I catch and eat them both. Many a time, I've been in my boat at a certain place on White River as the sun went down. And it looks like that red ball of fire is going right into the water. 
And I looked at the willows over on the sandbar and the bluffs on the opposite side of the river, and I've considered the stillness of the climate, and I just wanted to reach out and incorporate all of it into my being. Nature's beautiful. You ever live through a tornado? In 1959, one went just east of this community. It hit Judge Sonia, killed 38 people. Killed 12 at Ball Knock, 2 at Russell, 25 at Cotton Plant, and it had hit earlier in the day at Warren. I don't know how many died. We filled one Searcy Hospital. We filled one of our dormitories. We filled the old Harding Gymnasium with injured people. I was one of the first persons into Judge Sonia after the winds quit blowing. That town looked to me as though it had been shelled by heavy artillery. Now, those of you who are acquainted with the laws of nature can explain all of this to me so that there is a beautiful harmony. But I won't tell you, nature's kind of hard to understand. And the same God who gave nature gave us the Bible. And if there are some difficulties in nature, if there are some things in nature which are hard for us to reconcile and understand, you can expect to find some difficulties in the Bible, too. The Bible was not only written for the simple and the uneducated, it was written for the brilliant and the learned. And those who have probed into its depths more than anyone else would be the first ones to tell you they don't know it all. But we can know enough of the Bible to start. If you're lost tonight, will you blame your parents? According to Luke 15, Jesus told of a woman who had ten coins and lost one. Now, the point I'm about to make was not made by Jesus in the parable, but it is evident. The woman lost that coin because of carelessness. And sometimes we lose our children the same way. I read of a fellow who took his little, took his little girl into a field. And he sat down under a tree, and she was running through the flowers saying, Pretty, pretty. In just a moment, he went to sleep. He didn't sleep but a few minutes, and he awakened, and his little girl was nowhere in sight. And frantically, he began to search for her. And it wasn't long until he found her body at the foot of a long fall. While he slept, she died. I read of a lady who was hanging her wash on the back line, and she saw the house was on fire. She rushed into one of the bedrooms and began to throw bed clothing out the windows. Finally, she was driven from the house by the smoke and the fire, and on the outside, when it was too late... She realized while she was setting her bedclothes, she had left a baby in another room to burn to death. In 1971, I flew to Wichita Falls, Texas, for a citywide campaign. Flew in there on Sunday afternoon, and the next morning I was reading the paper, and I saw where three little children had drowned in a lake nearby. And when they drowned, there wasn't a parent in sight. Not a one. The home has a mission. Solomon summed it up this way, Proverbs 22, 6, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he'll not depart from it. Paul put it this way at Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Now, it's criminal not to provide food, shelter, and clothing for our children. And we read a great deal in the papers today about child abuse, and I'm telling you, I have read stories that are just incredible. I can't believe that an adult would treat an innocent child 
the way they're being treated. But there is another kind of abuse that's worse, and that's spiritual neglect. Now, that's worse. And that goes on regularly and doesn't get anyone's dander up. To the extent that the home fails to fulfill its mission, to that extent you can blame your parents for your lost condition. How about the church? Is it to blame? The church has a mission too. 1 Timothy 3.15 says it's the pillar and the support or ground of the truth. It's the obligation of the church, number one, to preach the gospel to every creature. When the Jerusalem church was scattered abroad, according to Acts 8.4, they went everywhere preaching the Word. In Hebrews 5.12, the inspired writer said, For when for the time you ought to be teachers, there is a time when Christians ought to be mature enough to teach others. And the church is obligated to be concerned about the backslidden. Galatians 6.1, Paul said, If any man be overtaken in the fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. It's the obligation of the church to train and equip men and women to carry the unsearchable riches of Jesus to the world. It's the obligation of the church to train young men to serve as elders and deacons and preachers. It's the obligation of every Christian to be a good example. In Matthew 5:16, Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And to the extent the church fails to fulfill its mission, to that extent the church is responsible for the loss of the world. But regardless of who we might blame tonight for our lost condition, when it's all said and done, we're at fault. If we are lost, we will bear the consequences. Some of the older people in this audience will remember Nolan Lemons. Nolan Lemons married Doris Claypool. We were all in school at the same time. And Nolan and Doris and their five children were driving south of St. Louis one night, and a drunk went across the center line, hit them head on, killed Nolan, four of the children. Doris had one left, and Howard drowned a short time before he was to have come to Harding. She's lost all five of her children. I went to the funeral when Nolan was buried. His body was in the center. He was flanked on either side by two children. I have never been to a funeral like that before nor since. Nolan was not to blame. He was not at fault. It was the drunk fault. But Nolan and those four youngsters bore the consequences. And someone else may have hurt you, but you'll bear the consequence if you leave the world without a Savior. What are a few of the consequences of being lost? Number one, if you're lost now, if you remain lost forever, you will have perverted your reason for existence. I think one of my favorite books in the Bible is Ecclesiastes. I used to just revel in teaching Ecclesiastes to freshmen. It's just as up-to-date as anything you'll ever read. And the writer tells us how that he tried to find fulfillment in, in pleasure, in wealth, sexual immorality, wisdom, and the works of his hands. But all those were vanity, a vexation of the Spirit, and striving after wind. And finally he came down to that last twelfth chapter and he said, Hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Let us fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. 
And I understand the original language is a bit stronger. It says, Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole of man. In other words, if an individual does not fear the Lord, he or she is just a half person. You ever thought about running your automobile on soup? Do you ever think about drinking gasoline? If you try to nourish your body with gasoline and run an engine on soup, you have perverted the purpose of both. Soup is to drink or eat, and gasoline is to burn in an engine. We all understand that to engage in these two activities would be foolish or senseless, but that's just innocent child's play in comparison to the perversion of living without the Lord. For what was a glove made to fit a hand? For what reason were we created to glorify God? And anything else in life is a perversion. Anything. And if one is lost, he has perverted his reason for existence. If one is lost, he will not be lost alone. We all have influence. First Corinthians fifteen thirty three, Paul said evil companionships corrupt good morals. That's influence. I believe if we go to heaven, we'll take someone with us. Conversely, I believe if we go to hell, we'll take someone with us. And if we take someone with us, it'll probably be someone very near and very dear. Someone close to us. Two of my female cousins were talking years ago about their non-Christian mates. And as they spoke to one another, they were speaking in the presence of their children. And one of the little boys ran up to his mother and said, Mother, if my daddy goes to hell, I want to go with him. He had no idea what he was saying. But he's very serious about it. If my daddy goes to hell, I want to go with him. Let me tell you, that boy's past 30 now. And he's lost in sin, been lost all his life. And until two years ago, his daddy was lost. His daddy had an influence. His daddy had an influence on that boy, an adverse one. I remember years ago trying to get his father to straighten up and pleading with him on the basis that he had two sons who were looking to him. And his daddy looked... The daddy looked me right straight in the face. He said, I want my two boys to do anything they're big enough to do. He meant it too. And I tried to explain as kindly as I could that he was a first-class idiot. If he wanted his boys to do anything they were big enough to do. But both of them are lost tonight. You see, daddy didn't straighten up until he's past 50. We have an influence. If you've done much personal work, I know you've run into this. You've taught an individual the gospel and he's about ready to submit to the demands of the Savior and all at once he gets the strangest look on his face. And you know you've lost him. And you say, what's, what's, what's wrong? Well, my daddy was a good man. And he never was baptized. He's been gone a long time. I believe he's all right. I don't see any need in my doing this. Maybe his daddy's been gone 20, 25 years, but he's still exerting an influence over the life of the living son. We have a 
14-year-old boy in our family. What would you think of me if I took a butcher knife and plunged it into his heart? Uh, you couldn't find the words to describe how heinous and evil I'd committed. Well, what about the mother, the daddy, the brother, the sister, or the friend who would have an influence on another not to lead him to experience physical death, but to experience eternal death? Wouldn't it be horrible to wake up in torment in the certain knowledge that not only am I there, but someone else is there whom I influence to follow me every step of the way? If you're lost, you won't be lost alone. If you're lost, you'll miss the abundant life here and now. At John 10.10, Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. You'll miss the assurance of forgiveness the fellowship and the strength of the indwelling Spirit, the sustaining power of God the Father and God the Son, the encouragement and the love of the brethren, the peace of God which surpasses understanding, the brightness of Christian hope, the joy of serving. Instead, your life will be characterized by fear, uncertainty, doubt, and guilt. Have you ever seen a drunkard in the gutter? Have you ever seen a wino on skid row? Isn't it tragic to see a person in that condition? But that's not the real tragedy. The real tragedy is not just what the individual has become, but the real tragedy is what he could have been. He could have been a Christian. Could have been a Christian husband, Christian father. Could have been a Christian leader. Could have exercised a righteous influence in the community. It's not only what he's become, it's what he's missed. We're not simply in the business of saving souls. We're trying to save lives. I probably won't quote it right, but of all of the words of tongue or pen, the saddest of these, it might have been. For if you're lost, you'll miss heaven. And what does that mean? It means you'll miss the company of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You'll miss the fellowship of all the redeemed of all the ages. You'll miss the everlasting beauty of that celestial city. You'll not see its walls of jasper, streets of gold, gates of pearl. You'll never witness those twelve precious foundations upon which the community has been founded. You'll not see a place which has no need of the sun, the moon, or the electric lights because of the radiance that emanates from the throne of God. You'll never see that. You'll never hear those great swelling choruses that ascend up to the Father day and night forever and ever. And you'll miss the delight of serving God with those on the other side. Five, if you're lost, you'll go to hell. Men use that expression in talking to one another. It's a form of profanity. If anyone has ever thought it through, surely he wouldn't tell a fellow individual created in the image of God to go to torment. He wouldn't say that. In the Bible, hell is described as everlasting punishment, eternal fire, the weeping and the gnashing of teeth, outer darkness. It is a condition without hope. I don't care how liberal one may be in interpreting the biblical metaphors used to describe hell. When he has finished, 
His interpretation. There is simply no way hell can be made into a Sunday school picnic. It's a horrible, wretched existence at best. And at worst, it's worse than anything we can imagine. And six, if you're lost, you'll bring sorrow to others. God willing, I intend to go to Florence, Alabama Saturday and start a meeting over there Sunday morning. And I'll drive or fly. And suppose that between here and Florence, I'm involved in an accident and killed. Well, the Cliff Guinnesses, the Joe Pryors, the George S. Bensons, the A.S. Crooms, the L.C. Sears, and a host of other friends of ours will go by the house. And they'll talk to Marilyn. And they'll do their best to comfort her. But now let's suppose that she knows I died lost. There's not anything that anyone can say or do to lift that burden from her heart. No one. I was in an Arkansas meeting one night, and I made a statement similar to that. After service, standing before her, shaking hands, a woman walked by me and said, That was hard to take. I said, What? She said, that was hard to take. And I asked, ma'am, what are you talking about? Well, that point about a husband dying unprepared. I lost my husband six months ago in an automobile accident, and he wasn't a Christian. I want you to know that was hard to take. I said, dear sister, as God is my witness, I didn't say that to add to your burden of grief. I said that in the hopes of being able to awaken others in the audience to a sense of responsibility so their loved ones and their relatives wouldn't have that experience when they died unprepared to meet Christ. I was in an Illinois meeting. A lady came out one night with tears in her eyes. She said, Brother Allen, I lost my husband three months ago. She was young, surrounded by two or three children. And she said, I am so happy to tell you that he died in Christ. He was a Christian. See the contrast between the two? One woman brokenhearted, and the other one could rejoice, even though it was a great grief for her to bear, that her husband had gone on to be with the Lord. I lost a 24-year-old cousin under very unusual circumstances. We cannot definitely prove that he's dead, because the body has never been found. And I'll not go into all of the, the details of what maybe happened to him. But I went to see his grandmother, my aunt. And we were talking about him, and finally she began to cry. And she said, Jimmy, I could stand it had he been a Christian. Now, what was I supposed to say to her? I just gritted my teeth and fought back the tears, and I didn't say anything. Because she was right. That boy was lost. He didn't have a chance of going to heaven. You see the burden of grief that she experienced because her grandson died without any hope. And if you die lost, what's this going to do to Jesus? You will have died in rebellion to His will. You will have lived 
lifted clenched fists before his nail-pierced hands. You will have received his grace in vain. And as far as you are concerned, he will have died for nothing. That'll be your response to the Savior if you die lost. In the light of what I've said tonight, you can give one of three reactions. And all three of these, incidentally, are recorded in Acts 17. Paul had preached to the Athenians, and some of them mocked him. Called him a spermologos. Seed picker. Gutter snipe trying to piece together scraps of information and make sense of them. They mocked him, ridiculed him. And then there were some who procrastinated. They said, hey, we'll hear you again about this matter. And then there were some who became obedient. Dionysius, the Areopagite, Damaris, and some others became Christians. Three different responses. Same message. Some mocked, some procrastinated, and some yielded. You can do one of those three. I can't speak for the whole community, but I know there are some young people in the school who think it's cool to mock and ridicule the religion of Christ. I wonder if we could get one of those Athenians back here tonight. He'd stand on this platform where I am. What he'd say about how cool it is to mock, ridicule, and make fun of Christ crucified and risen. What will be your response? What will be your reaction? Will you put it off until another day? Or will you do as Dionysius and Tamaris did? Will you yield? Before I conclude, I want to ask you to say three things to yourself. Number one, I can do all things through Christ. Number two, I will arise. No, number two, I must be about my Father's business. Number three, I will arise and go to my Father's house. I wish you'd just say to yourself, I can do it, and I must do it, and I will do it. And then if you'll follow through on those three statements, by and by you'll be able to say with Paul, I have fought a good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but to all them also who love His appearing. I can do it. I must do it. I will do it. And then when time and timely things are behind us, I have done it. You'll not regret serving the Lord. Jeremiah said the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we're not saved. This meeting is just about to come to an end. Tomorrow night it'll be history. Is there anyone here still lost? I urge you to think seriously about what I've said. If you've never been baptized into Christ, then by all means, do it tonight. If you need to come back home for restoration, rededication, do it tonight. The title for this sermon has been, If I Am Lost. And I've made two points. If I am lost, number one, who's to blame? And if I am lost, number two, 
what will be the consequences. And I hope you'll use the good common sense with which God has endowed you and you'll make the right decision this evening. We're going to sing a why not tonight. Jesus is calling. Won't you come right now? While together we stand and sing.